That everyone is still doing okay, that everybody is staying safe and healthy, and joyful, uh, as joyful as you can be, you know, under the the present circumstances. Please keep praying uh, that we see an end to this uh, sooner than later, and that we can all be worshiping together before too long. Well, it is Father's Day, and. I was going to open up with, with a dad joke in honor of it being Father's Day. You know, I was going to ask you if, if you would, if you knew that there were surfers in the Bible. And, uh, if you said no, I, I would have asked you, well, aren't you familiar with the book of Dude Aronomy? See, I was going to, I was going to do that. But, uh, instead, I just want to say a happy Father's Day. To all the fathers out there, I, I hope that you have a, a terrific time with your families. The, any kind of celebrations today are obviously going to look a little bit different than they did in the past, but I still hope that you, you know, you're able to spend time with your loved ones and that you have a, a terrific day. You know, I think it was about two months ago, my, uh, sense of time, uh, during this lockdown has gotten pretty far out of whack, but I think it was about two months ago, and I was talking with Pat Dopiera. Uh, she was scheduling me uh, to preach, and she mentioned that one of my Sundays w- would be Father's Day. Well, uh, the first thing that went through my mind was, oh boy, three Sundays in a row? <laughs> but the second thing that, that came to my mind was, Okay, I've got a Father's Day message to deliver, but I really don't want to to do something I've, I've heard before. I I didn't really want to do a, a sermon based on the prodigal son. I really didn't want to do something from, uh, say, David and his relationship to his sons. Uh, now, all of these are fine, and, and there's nothing nothing wrong with them, but I really wanted to do something that would be new, New, new to me and, and hopefully new to you. Well, a, as I expressed those concerns and uh, desires to Pat, she mentioned that one of the best Father's Day sermons that she had ever heard uh, was from Louis Palau. And Louis Palau uh, gave a sermon based on the life of Joseph, uh, the father of Jesus. Now, the idea of a man raising a son that is not his own, that is not his by blood, what's well, very near and dear to my heart. You know, I was, I was raised by a stepdad. And I know firsthand what an incredible blessing it is to be raised by someone who, even though you are not their son by blood, that they love you and take care of you as if you were. So I know that he's going to be watching this video. 
So I want to say a special thank you to my dad, George Tanner. Thank you for the difference that, that you made in my life and that you continue to make. You know, my dad set an example that I hope to set for my children. I have a stepson now, and I want to be for him what George Tanner is and was for me. Joseph did not share blood with Jesus. But as we are going to see, that didn't seem to matter at all. The, the love and care that Joseph showed to his adopted son is the beautiful picture of the love that our Heavenly Father shows to us. So what do we know about Joseph? Well, the short answer is not very much. The Bible doesn't give us much information about Joseph. In fact, he is mentioned by name only 11 times, five times in Matthew, five times in Luke, and only one time in the Gospel of John. They say that nature abhors a vacuum. Well, so does history. A few creative individuals in, in the early church, with all good intentions, they, they set out to, to remedy that situation. Between 150 and 400 A.D., several attempts were made to fill in the gaps about the early life of Jesus and his family. Uh, manuscripts appeared on the scene claiming to offer details about Jesus and the family that were not present in the Gospels. Written by unknown authors with dubious origins, these writings are known today as the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is the Greek word for hidden. And the reason for that was that there were a group of people who who used these sketchy manuscripts to claim that they had some secret knowledge uh, that needed to be hidden from anyone that was not part of their inner circle. Uh, one of these apocryphal texts, known as the Proto-Evangelium of James, or simply as the Gospel of James, appeared on the scene at about 145 A.D. In the Gospel of James, we read the first reference to a doctrine known as the e eternal virginity of Mary. That is, Mary was virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. So, that begs the question, how do they explain the fact that Jesus had siblings? Well, it's easy, for them anyway. In the Gospel of James, Joseph is presented as an old man, an old man who has, is chosen by God to, to take care of Mary. And, and Joseph had children from a former marriage, thus explaining how Jesus ended up with brothers and sisters. Well, the years go by, and, and wouldn't you know it, they were, there were still some questions about this eternal virginity of Mary. So, another manuscript appears on the scene at around 400 A.D., uh, and it was called The History of Joseph the Carpenter. It is framed as a biography of Joseph dictated by Jesus. So Joseph is presented as a 90-year-old man. Yeah, 90 years old, who has uh, four sons and two daughters from a previous marriage. Now, this 90-year-old man is given charge of Mary, 
who at the time was only 12 years old, and between the ages of 12 and 14 and a half, when she is uh, finally married, she works as a nanny in, in Joseph's house. Uh, Joseph, according to the history of Joseph the carpenter, Joseph lives to 111 years old. And in his death scene, which is, takes up half of the manuscript uh, in its description, at his deathbed, he is, he's attended by angels, and he, right up to the very last minute, uh, asserts the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So, that is what people wanted to believe about Joseph. But we're still left with the question of, what do we really know about the man? Well, we know from the genealogy that is presented in Matthew that Joseph was descended from the line of David, as was Mary. We get our first real glimpse of Joseph from this passage found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Uh, what I'm going to read to you takes place right after Mary tells Joseph that she is with child. And Joseph, uh, as far as she, as far as he knows, uh, Mary was still a virgin. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We know that God trusted Joseph, and because of Joseph's reaction to a, a very, very strange situation, we see that God's trust was well-placed. Joseph was chosen by God with the same intention that Mary had been. God chose this couple to nurture and raise his son into manhood. Joseph was obedient to God. This is the single most important point that I want to make. Joseph was obedient to God because Without that fact, everything that else that I'm going to talk about, it wouldn't even have happened. Just imagine, if you will, for, for a moment, how Joseph must have felt when he found out that Mary was pregnant. The scriptures don't elaborate, but I think it's safe to assume that he felt like any of, any of us would have felt in that same situation. You know, I can, I can see him running through a full gamut of emotions from initial shock and, and disbelief and then to, then to maybe anger and humiliation and then maybe moving into sadness and, and resolve. The scripture picks up at resolve. It, it tells us that Joseph 
had resolved to divorce her quietly. What does that even mean, uh, divorce her quietly? In order to answer that question, we're going to need a little bit of background information on Jewish marriage customs. The most renowned of Jewish medieval scholars, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, tells us that the Jewish marriage consisted of two parts. The first was the betrothal, or the kedushin. The second part were the nuptials, or the chapah. The first, sta- the first stage of, of marriage, it's not a preliminary agreement, like the engagement that we would find in, in Western culture. No, it's an integral part, an integral component of a two-step marriage process. The betrothal portion is a sort of uh, nascent marriage. Uh, from that point onward, the couple is considered married. Now, they live apart, but they are considered married. Up until the 12th century, th- this process could take up to a year in order to make preparations for the final stage. And the second stage of, of the marriage process is the consummation. And there's a couple of names for it. One of the terms is nasun, meaning elevation of status, and it comes from the word nasa, which is the carriage that would carry the bride from her father's house to her, her husband's house. So, as we can see from what we have discussed so far, Joseph couldn't just get up and run away. He had to divorce Mary if he decided that, that he wanted out. He would have had to surrender the dowry back to Mary's father and probably would have p- had to pay a, a pretty hefty penalty fine. The wedding feast would have been canceled and the, and the couple would have gone their, their separate ways. Well, fortunately, it, it never gets to that point. See, while Joseph is sleeping, an angel of the Lord appears to him in, in a dream. And, and the angel tells Joseph that he shouldn't be afraid to go through with the wedding. Uh, he tells Joseph that, that the child that Mary is carrying is from the Holy Spirit. He tells him that Mary will, will have a son and that Joseph is to name the son. He is to name that son Jesus which is from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means to deliver or to rescue, because Jesus will save his people from their sin. Joseph awakens from his dream and proceeds to do exactly what was told. Joseph awakens from his dream and proceeds to do exactly what he was told to do. And this will bring me to my second point, is that Joseph loved Mary. Even the quietest of quiet divorces would still have placed Mary in harm's way. Once the evidence of her her pregnancy became apparent, she would have become an even bigger target for scandal. Chances are people would have not been too receptive to the notion that the Holy Spirit was responsible for her condition, and she would have more than likely been accused of adultery, an offense that was punishable by death. Joseph loved Mary. He loved her enough that he was willing to accept a a pretty wild situation and not run for the hills. Joseph loved Mary 
and Joseph protected his family. When Jesus is still an infant, you know, the wise men come come to visit him from the east, and, and they go to King Herod, also known as Herod the Great, and they ask him where they can find this newborn king of the Jews. Well, this is a surprise to Herod, uh, but he keeps his cool, and he uh, he lets the wise men leave, but he, he makes sure to tell them that, hey, when you find this newborn king, let me know uh, so I can personally go and pay him honor. So the wise men go off, they, they visit Jesus, but on their way back, the Lord warns them. The Lord warns them not to go and see King Herod. So they make a point to, to circle around where Herod is and they return to their home country. Fortunately, once again, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and, and tells him to take his family and flee to Egypt because Herod is out searching for the baby. He tells Joseph to stay in Egypt until Herod dies and it would be safe to return. In the meantime, Herod realizes that the wise men have, have blown him off and he loses it. And he doesn't have the wise men to use as, a, as trackers to, to bring him to the, the Christ child. So what he does is he adopts a, a more scattershot approach. Herod decrees that every child under the age of two in Bethlehem and, and in the surrounding area, every child under the age of two is to be slain. This is absolutely horrific. It, it becomes known as the massacre of the innocents. So Joseph and his family head off to Egypt. Now, Egypt was the logical choice for two reasons. One, it was outside of the area of control. Herod, Herod's power did not extend into the territory of Egypt. The second reason was that because Egypt was part of the Roman Empire, there was a road. There was a road called the Way of the Sea, and it, it would make travel a little bit easier and a little bit safer, but it, it's still a 40-mile 40 40-mile 40 journey on foot. I, they may have had a donkey, but still, it's a 40-mile journey with an infant. Well, the family stays in Egypt until, once again, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that Herod has died and that it's safe. You can come back to Judea now. But e even though Herod the Great is dead, his son, Archelaus, has taken over the throne. Well, this bothers Joseph because Archelaus is a nasty piece of work. And in fact, Archelaus is so bad that the Romans eventually have to depose him because the people were complaining about him so much. How bad do you have to be in order for the Romans to think you're too bad? Anyway, to avoid any trouble from Archelaus, Joseph settles his family in Galilee, where Luke's gospel tells us that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Although the scripture does not give us too much about Jesus' early life, I think that, that we're able to make some solid assumptions 
about Joseph from what little that we do have. Joseph treated Jesus as his own son. According to Jewish law, when Joseph named the child, he acknowledged the child as his own, and he became the legal father. His commitment to this relationship was immediately apparent. The measures that Joseph took to protect Jesus, they can't be interpreted as anything else but total dedication to the welfare of his child. And based on his character so far, I don't have any reason to suspect that anything changed in that relationship as Jesus got older. We know that Joseph was a carpenter and that Jesus was also a carpenter. Well, there were no trade schools back then, so I think it's safe to assume that Jesus learned his trade from Joseph. And I imagine that their love and respect for each other only deepened. You know, there there's a bonding that occurs between a father and a son where, where dad is, is teaching Junior how to do something the way that, that dad does it. See, Joseph treated Jesus as his own son, and he allowed Jesus to pursue his own interests. Our, our children will occasionally say and do things that we just don't understand. We try to understand and, and be supportive, but we're not always going to get it. But because we love our kids and they seem to love whatever it is they're doing, we just get out of the way and, and let them enjoy themselves. Now, for, for this particular point, I'd like to refer to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 50, which reads, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, how many movies have used that particular scenario? The family takes off on vacation only to discover that they've left somebody behind. The Home Alone series managed to stretch that plot line out over five different pictures. The important point here is that there's no mention of any anger or frustration on Joseph's part. Two days get added to the journey, and Joseph just seems to take it in stride. Mary now, Mary gets a little heated and, and throws on the guilt, but not Joseph. Even though he doesn't understand why Jesus stayed behind, he stays calm. He's just happy to find his son safe and sound. Now, with someone of a slightly different temperament, 
this situation could well have ended with a certain young man losing his studying at the temple privileges for a month. Joseph loved Mary. Joseph protected his family. Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph strictly followed the customs and the observances of his religion. There are several examples in scripture where he participates in the rites and the ceremonies that were required of him. I'm reminded of of a quote from Clarence Kellen. Clarence Kellen is a self-described best second-rate writer in America. And he had this to say about his own father. My father didn't tell me how to live. He lived and let me watch him do it. One of the most powerful testaments to Joseph's righteousness was how his kids turned out. Now, we all know how Jesus turned out, and I'm not referring to him. See, Joseph raised at least two other boys and possibly daughters as well. Well, two of his sons that we know of for sure were greatly used by God. James and Jude, they each have books in the New Testament. And James was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Joseph had devoted his life to serving the Lord, and he raised his children to do the same. Here's something from Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I imagine that Joseph was also a patient man. Because, you know, there must have been talk. From the moment that word got out about Mary's condition, there had to have been gossip. I am sure that it it didn't stop as Jesus got older. Now, although we don't have any written evidence, I, I feel fairly safe in assuming that Jesus lived with his family up until he started his ministry. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that an unmarried 30-year-old was the source of a, of a lot of talk among the neighbors. And I imagine Joseph, who knew that Jesus was special and, and was part of God's plan in some way, he probably had to be wondering when this special purpose was going to kick in. And I also wonder about the dynamic of Jesus and, and Joseph. And I also wonder about the dynamics between Joseph, Jesus, and the other children. If you grew up with brothers and sisters, then you, then you probably know that it isn't always Brady Bunch perfect family time. I wonder, were there times when, when Joseph had to defend Jesus because one of his siblings w- was maybe giving him a hard time? It, it could not have been easy growing up with a brother who never did anything wrong. I mean, the scriptures are very clear that Jesus lived a sinless life. Were there times when the other kids got frustrated over the fact that Jesus had raised the bar so high? Do you think that Joseph ever had to uh, get in the middle of of squabbles and and calm things down? Now, the reason I, I thought to ask these questions was because of the incident that's mentioned in Mark 3, Uh, where the family of Jesus tells the crowd that Jesus is, quote, out of his mind. Perhaps this was not an isolated incident. I mean, who knows? 
But for now, it, it goes on the list of, of things I am going to ask about when, when I get to heaven. So let's recap quickly what we've learned about Joseph, this extraordinarily ordinary man who was chosen by God to play a lead role in God's plan for salvation. Righteous, obedient, loving, patient, understanding, accepting. I mean, that's a pretty impressive list for anyone. That's an impressive list of qualities that you would want in anybody, but especially a parent. We build on a foundation of faith. Everything that we do in the course of raising our children needs to be done within that framework. We submit our lives to God and, in obedience, allow him to inform and shape the decisions we make for our families. Father Knows Best is more than than just a reference to a classic television show. Just like Joseph, our most important relationship is the one that we have with our God, our Father. The second most important relationship that we will have is with our wives. This is what scripture has to say about that. In Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means more than just providing for her material needs. It's more than than simply being there for her emotionally and physically. It is an instruction to die to ourselves, to put the welfare of our wives above our own. Christ gave his all for his bride, the church. We're called to do nothing less for our brides. The importance of showing unconditional love to our wives, it cannot be understated. I want to read you all a quote now from Theodore Hesburgh. But before I do that, let me give a little bit of bonus information about Theodore Hesburgh. The Reverend Theodore Martin Hesburgh is is probably best known for being the president of Notre Dame University for 35 years. Reverend Hesburgh has been awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. He's been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And this is the one that I liked. He holds over 150 honorary degrees, and he is in the Book of World's Records because of that. Here is what Reverend Hesburgh had to say. One of the most important things that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Our relationship with our wives not only affects the children while while they are still in the home, but it has a long-term effect on how our children will relate to their spouses. A, A loving and godly home establishes a standard and provides a model for how things should be. A couple of years ago, my daughter, Mary, uh, texted me to tell me that she had been seeing someone. It was really sweet how, how she began the message with, uh, now, Dad, I know that we haven't talked a lot about this kind of thing, but I wanted you to hear it from me. Now, I, I'm aware of all those overprotective dad jokes and memes that, that are out there on the Internet and and how easy it would have been to just, you know, 
glibly and casually toss one of those back as my response. I mean, they're the kind that show the guy sitting on the couch with a with a shotgun or a machete or both, uh, and he's waiting for his daughter to come home from her date. I mean, one of one of the funnier ones actually is a uh, where it shows this bearded mountain man looking guy, and the caption reads, "I threw a shotgun at my daughter's boyfriend, and I told him after 10 p.m." They come a lot faster. But anyway, I, I didn't do any of that, okay? I texted her back, and I told her that I trusted her judgment. I told her that I knew that she knew how she should be treated. I was confident in my belief based on the quality of the relationship that I have with her mother and what had been modeled in our home. One of the most important things that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Our children are unique creations. They, they're not meant to be some kind of extension of ourselves. They have been given their own paths to follow and their own worlds to explore. Worlds that may surprise us and at times confound us. How many of us have watched as our children have entered into a phase of behavior, you know, like dressing a certain way or listening to a certain type of music or watching a TV show that we don't even get at all, a behavior that leaves us shaking our heads, asking ourselves how they could possibly find anything of value in what they're doing. So we patiently hope and pray that at some point, they will return to their senses and move on to something that we know will be more deserving of their attention. But what do we do if they never return to their senses? When we have reached the limits of understanding and acceptance, what do we do next? What do we do when our child refuses to listen to our advice, when our child insists on repeating unhealthy behaviors despite our very best efforts to help them? How do we handle the disappointment and the rejection? At this point, all that we can do is, is look to our Heavenly Father. We look to the Father and we ask ourselves the following questions. How did God respond when we stopped listening to Him? How did God respond when we rejected his plan for us? How did God respond when we disappointed him and hurt him? God's response was the most amazing display of love and grace that the world has ever seen. You all know this verse from Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love that we are to show our children. They need to know that there is nothing that can separate them from that love. They need to know that there is some place on this earth where they can just be who they are. Without judgment, without prejudice, and without conditions. There is an analogy that compares the, the raising of a child to the drawing back of an arrow in a bow. From birth onward, we're drawing back that bow 
and we're aiming that arrow. We put all of our best efforts into making sure that the arrow flies straight and that it flies true and that it, that it hits the target. The target being a godly and a happy life. At some point, we have to release the arrow. We release the arrow knowing full well that there are no guarantees. We release the arrow knowing that there will be wind and there will be rain, there will be storms, and that once released, God is in control of that arrow. We trust Him to help our arrows find their marks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of fatherhood and for the blessing of all the godly fathers who are doing their best to raise children in the fear and knowledge of you. We thank you for the example that you provided, the example of unconditional love that inspires us and guides us. Lord, we pray that you continue to provide for the people of Blossom Valley Bible Church. We ask that you continue to provide us with opportunities to spread the good news of your gospel. Lord, we pray that the day comes soon when we can all be together again, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he be gracious unto each and every one of you. May the Lord turn his face to make it shine upon you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a beautiful week. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Stay joyful. I love you all. And I'll see you soon. Bye. It's a strong and mighty tower, your name. At this time, we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus said in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus Christ has prepared a place for us in heaven. And there's plenty and plenty of room. And we can thank God for the salvation we have in Christ. It is magnificent. Even at a time like this when there are so many things going on in this world, so many problems and so many dangers and we're fearful from time to time and yet we know with absolute certainty that God has not forgotten us and we have the promise of life with Christ and with the Father for all eternity. Now, the bread and the juice represent what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary's cross. The bread represents the body of Christ and the juice represents his blood. 
when he died on Calvary's cross, he suffered excruciating pain for you and for me. And we're to never forget what our Savior did on our behalf. So taking the bread, we remember what he did for us on Calvary's, on Calvary's cross. Let's partake of the bread together. The juice represents his blood that he shed for us, washing away all our sins. Let's partake of the juice together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can celebrate communion, remembering what our Savior did for us on Calvary's cross, and that whosoever would partake of Christ can have the absolute assurance of eternal life. Thank you, God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, and I see many searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers. Only you provide, cause you know just what we need before we